dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't think it's possible to overemphasize or say strongly enough that the main message of God for you, indeed for the world, is his gospel message. That wonderfully good news that by the grace of God, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're saved. Forgiveness of sins is ours for the taking, and with it life and salvation and eternity of God with heaven. So shame on me as an occasional preacher and teacher of God's word if I don't make that clear to you that that is God's main message for you. And really shame on all of us as the church to which God has entrusted his word if we together don't make that clear to the world that that's God's main message for them as well. But shame on me, and really again, shame on all of us, if we do not also speak very clearly and very frankly and without any sugarcoating about the consequences that are in store for those who ignore that message, who do not acknowledge their sin and repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ alone as their only hope for salvation. Shame on us if we do not speak clearly about such things as God's anger and wrath against sin, if we do not speak clearly about hell and about eternal damnation, about the truth that God does indeed forsake sinners. This morning we come to this point in Jesus' time on the cross when those consequences of sin and God's wrath and judgment against it are so very apparent. And we're going to talk clearly and frankly about those consequences this morning. But even here in this scene, when the wrath and judgment of God are so very apparent, we still see behind all of it God's great love for sinners. Even here we still see that primary message of the gospel, God's great love for sinners, because it is Jesus who is enduring those consequences for us. It is Jesus who is offering himself up to be the God-forsaken sinner so that we won't have to be. So this morning, as we consider these two short verses of Scripture and think about this fourth word of Christ from the cross, it is my hope and prayer that each and every one of you today will see very clearly that stark truth of God's wrath against sinners and still, even then, see, more importantly, God's great love for sinners. And as contradictory as those two things sound, we still see both of them and they are both understood here at this moment of Jesus on the cross. So our, our focus in this worship and sermon series is, of course, on the words of Christ from the cross. But we certainly can't overlook what else was going on. And that's especially true in this case in this time of Jesus on the cross, where Jesus' words 
simply punctuate the end of this three-hour span of darkness, of eerie, unexplained darkness that blanketed the earth like a shroud. Understand that darkness is the sign of God's condemnation and God's wrath. In Scripture, light goes along with God's presence and His glory, but darkness always goes along with His judgment and His wrath. Matthew, as we heard, just simply records the fact that it became dark for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, being noon to to about three o'clock. It's Luke who tells us this interesting fact, uh, explaining that darkness, that it was because the sun stopped shining. The sun failed to work. It wasn't doing its job anymore. And so it seems that it wasn't just that it became stormy and overcast and clouds covered the sun. Even then, there is still a semblance of light. And it certainly wasn't a solar eclipse because we know that's impossible during a full moon. And we know it was a full moon because it was the Passover. No, this darkness clearly was God's doing. And it was evidence of His judgment and condemnation. It was as if God was turning his back, withdrawing his presence and glory from the world. By the way, do you recall another instance of of darkness recorded for us in Scripture? Go back to Exodus, the land of Egypt. During that time when God was bringing about plagues upon Egypt to, to free his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt, the Ninth plague was darkness. Darkness that covered the Egyptians for three days. And interestingly enough, being the ninth plague, that means it came right before the tenth and final plague of death. That plague that went hand in hand with the institution of the Passover celebration, that time when the Israelites sacrificed the Passover lamb, putting the blood on the doorposts of their homes so that they would escape death. And through all of that, they were freed from slavery. Do you see the connection with what's going on here at the cross? The darkness that precedes the death, the death of of the true and ultimate Passover lamb that frees us from our slavery. But the darkness at that time was the judgment and condemnation against the ungodly Egyptians. And uh, the Old Testament prophet Amos records God himself foretelling about a day when there would be midday darkness in connection with his judgment on the world. Amos has, records God's word saying, In that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into grieving and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like grieving for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Yes, indeed, make no mistake, that three-hour span of darkness that day was no accident or coincidence of nature. It was the wrath of God being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of people. Not only do we see that wrath and judgment of God in that darkness, though we hear it from Jesus' own lips. Jesus takes up Psalm 22 on his lips. 
reciting the first verse of that psalm by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew what that darkness meant. He knew what was going on, that he was being forsaken. And make no mistake, it wasn't just that he was feeling forsaken, like we might feel lonely or feel like, oh, nobody's around helping us. No, Jesus knew he was really and truly being forsaken. And, and not just forsaken by Judas or Peter or any of the disciples that had deserted him. He wasn't just being forsaken by the Jewish leaders and, his, and, the, and the Jewish people or the Roman governor. No, he realized he was being forsaken by the ruler and judge of heaven and earth, of the whole universe, by God Almighty. And as impossible as that is for us to even begin to comprehend how God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, could turn his back and forsake God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, as impossible as that is for us to grasp and comprehend, that's what was going on. And it shouldn't surprise us that God would forsake someone. And don't think of that, you know, that's just the mean, angry God of the Old Testament either. As if the, the New Testament God is the kinder, gentler God. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus himself talked about this aspect of God, that God is a God who will turn his back and forsake sinners. Remember Jesus talking about that separation of the sheep and the goats? Remember Jesus' parable of the ten virgins where there was a wedding banquet getting underway, a wedding banquet that would represent for us eternal life with God in heaven. But as the parable goes, five of the virgins there invited to that banquet were foolish and they had paid no attention to it and they weren't ready for it, representing unbelievers who, who were without faith and didn't care about that banquet. And so when it got underway, the doors of the banquet were shut and then all of a sudden, these five foolish virgins realize they want to be in there in that banquet. They don't want to be outside, but they go, the door is shut, and they're knocking, let me in, let me in. And what does the bridegroom say? I don't know who you are. And do you remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he warned about uh, false Christians, those who say, Lord, Lord, uh, on the outside, but inside their heart is is not right in faith. And so the, to whom Jesus then says, well, away from me, you evildoers. I am forsaking you. And I haven't even begun to talk about what we are, what those sinners are forsaken to. I haven't even begun to talk about the hell to which God-forsaken sinners are condemned. Scripture is full and clear on that topic as well. Jesus himself is too. You probably remember it, Jesus describing it as a blazing furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So trust me, you don't want to be there for one second, much less for eternity. The point I'm trying to make to you people is that Scripture is so clear and, and full of this evidence of God's wrath and that, and that therefore we should be very clear and understand it as well, that God does forsake sinners even unto their eternal damnation in hell. And if we don't understand and grasp that truth, then nothing else I say to you today 
Nothing else that pastor or any good preacher worth his salt will say to you about the grace and love of Christ and God will make sense to you. And you certainly won't appreciate it. There is no good news from God if we don't first understand the horrible reality of the bad news. So, yes, Virginia, there is a hell. Yes, there is eternal damnation. Yes, let's be clear, there is God's burning anger and wrath against sinners. Yes, God will turn his back on the impenitent sinner. There is such a thing as being a God-forsaken sinner. Now, everybody take a deep breath. Stay with me. The real question to understand here, the most important thing to understand in what's going on here, though, is why it's Jesus who's being forsaken. So one professor I had many years ago talking about this word of Christ from the cross said that he thought that when Jesus spoke these words, the emphasis in his voice would have been on the word me, as if Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, why Jesus of all people to be forsaken by God? Is Jesus really to be counted among the goats in that separation? Is Jesus really one of those foolish ones to be shut out of God's banquet? Is Jesus really one of the evildoers to whom God's going to stay away from me? Is Jesus really the one for God to turn his back on? And the astounding answer is yes. Yes, but not because he was any of those things in and of himself by his own nature, but because he was there bearing our sins. He became one of the goats for us, the scapegoat we call it. He was there bearing our foolishness. He was there bearing our evil doings. This, is the beauty of the gospel message that God has for us, right? This now is where seeing God's wrath in all of this scene gives way to us seeing God's great love. How deep the Father's love for us. That's what we're going to sing at the end of the service today. That's what we see here. Once we see what What's going on with Jesus? Now, if anyone deserved or had a right to say those words, why me, in a time of suffering, it was certainly Jesus. You know, whenever we as preachers and teachers talk about the scriptural truth that all people have sinned, we always have to have that little disclaimer. Well, except for one, except for Jesus. Jesus is the only human that never sinned. Not in thought, not in word, not in deed. Not as a baby, not as a child, not as an adult, and believe it or not, not even as a teenager. (laughs) And even here in his dying breath, he remains sinless, expressing a trust in God despite the fact that God has forsaken him as he says, my God, my God. 
reciting those words is of Psalm 22, a psalm that expresses trust in God even when it seems like he's forsaking us. Even to the point of death, he was the obedient and sinless son of God. The perfect Passover lamb. So why is he being forsaken? Perhaps it's Paul who says it most succinctly and simply for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And hey, that sounds a whole lot like what Isaiah had said so many years earlier in words I'm sure are familiar to you because, because you can't think of this time, in this time of year of Christ on the cross without thinking of Isaiah 53 where Isaiah said, uh, prophesying about Jesus, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Right? And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, that's not fair, is it? <laughs> we, the sinners, get to have our slate wiped clean and go scot-free and... And Jesus, as the only sinless human being ever to live, he has to pay for the sins of everybody? No, that's not at all fair. And thank God for that. That's what the grace of God is all about. That grace that we talk about so often. That it is undeserved love towards us. A grace that is prompted by his love. For God so loved the world. You know those words when we just read them a little while ago from John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for this very purpose to be the forsaken one instead of us. Do you know the other John 3.16? His first epistle, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Once we understand this transfer of sins that's going on, the greatest accounting transfer ever made, where all the sins of our sins, all the sins of the world, of all people from all time, were transferred to Jesus' account. Once we see that's what's going on here, that's when seeing the wrath of God gives way to us seeing God's great love for sinners here at this time of Jesus on the cross. That's what dispels all fear and sadness and gloom as we think about the wrath of God. No, that wrath of God was taken by Jesus and what's left for us is his love. Any of you see the movie, it's been a number of years ago, National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, the first one. I like that movie. In it, uh, Nicolas Cage portrays a guy named Ben Gates who searches far wide for this huge, huge treasure and finally finds it, this treasure worth, I don't know, millions, billions of, of all kinds of gold artifacts. But in order to find it, he has to steal the Declaration of Independence. I mean, this is real stuff, reality TV. Right? He steals the Declaration of Independence because it has a clue on the back. Well, that, of course, draws the attention of the FBI, who chases after him. In the end, of course, he finds the treasure. 
And being the gracious guy he is, he turns it over along with the Declaration of Independence to the FBI agent, kind of turning himself in. But he says to the FBI agent, he says, I really don't want to go to prison. You don't know how much I don't want to go to prison. To which the FBI agent then says, someone's got to go to prison, Ben. That's kind of what's going on here at the cross with Christ, isn't it? Someone's got to go to prison. Someone's got to pay for sin. I really don't want to go to prison. You don't know how badly I don't want to go to God's prison. I don't want you to go to God's prison either. I'm sure you don't want to go there. But in keeping with God's justice, someone's got to go to prison. Someone's got to pay for sin. And thank God it's not going to be you or me. Jesus went to prison for us. Jesus was forsaken by God that day on the cross of Calvary so that you and I will never be forsaken. And for that good news, all God's people say, Amen.